Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, June the 2nd, 2022. This is episode 3106 of the Survival Podcast. It is Thursday, Thursday, Thursday. That means it's time for an expert council Q&A show. I've got a good lineup of experts for you today. In the Ron Paul Liberty highlights, we have Ron Paul, Dan McAdams, and Chris Rossini all checking in with us this week. The Fed is committing suicide with money printing, so says Dr. Ron Paul. Dan McAdams talks about how the sanctions have backfired on Russia. And literally at this point, the United States is financing Russia in the war. Sounds crazy, but it's not. Chris Rossini will talk about the devastating cost of our busybody government both at home and abroad. We'll move over with Matt Hill. Matt Hill on the expert council from Start9? Not exactly, but maybe. I've actually approached him with the idea, but we had a question come in this week, and people wanted to know the difference between the Embassy One server and the coming Embassy Pro server from Start9, and which one's right for them. I sent that over to Matt. He did a recording for us on that, so I'll play that for you. And of course, Start9 will help you take back your digital sovereignty. Tim the Toolman Cook has a grab bag of questions, including how to get a mower on the cheap, either really cheap or maybe even free, and what to look for and what to do, and what's usually wrong with a mower that won't run, uh, along with uh, things like generators and using them in bad weather, and a little, even more than that, all from Tim Toolman Cook. Jeff Lawton will talk about dealing with a biblical plague of Japanese beetles. Uh, this is something I have experience with from a long, long time ago when I used to live in Pennsylvania. Uh, I've never seen a Japanese beetle in the state of Texas. I don't know that they don't exist here, but I've never seen one. But I have dealt with these guys, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the bird variety that Jeff mentions when he brings these guys up and what they can and can't do for you. Doc Bones will talk about the growing problem of medical censorship, including some crazy, stupid shit being done. Well, it's being done in one of the states in the country. You want to guess which one it is? Medical censorship uh, that's going to adversely affect doctors for saying what the doctor thinks versus what the state says. Which state do you think would be most likely to do that? Most of you probably either said New York or California. If you said California... Ding, ding, ding. You are right. You are the next winner of the censorship is down. Next up, we'll have Dr. Ken Berry talking about dehydrated butter and eggs as keto preps and some thoughts on storing eggs in the butt, the, the chicken butt or the duck butt or the quail butt. Yeah, that all makes sense. And don't, don't store it in your butt. That's not a place to store anything, but especially not eggs. Uh, and then I will talk about natural governance. Natural governance, it, it, it plays right in with natural law, but I think it's one of these things that we overlook, and therefore we then create solutions for things that don't require solutions. This idea came to me when I, I read a quote this week, and I thought, I'm going to talk about that on the Thursday show. Thomas Paine said, Government, even in its best state, is but a necessary evil in its worst state, an intolerable one. So says Thomas Paine, one of our founders. We will talk about that in my anchor segment. And with that, let's kind of drop on in and hear from Ron Paul, Dan McAdams, and Chris Rossini and the Liberty Highlights for the week. It's sort of strange <clears throat> to think that monetary reform is coming now from Russia and China, not from America, because we have continued to abuse uh, the dollar as being the reserve currency of the world. Our foreign policy has designed uh, a, a situation, an environment that has made us not very popular around the world. You'd be surprised, I bet, the, the resentment is a lot stronger than is expressed. But because we still are powerful, have the most wealth, the most bombs, and we control the financial system the most, uh, people can't be anti-America too strongly. Uh, but we already know how many times we've put on sanctions and why we have motivated individuals like uh, China and Russia and the collusion the co uh, of the two together, they may well be able to pull something off. But the big thing is it's the weakening of the dollar. The dollar isn't weak on 
international exchanges right now, but it's weak when you go to the grocery store, and that's really what counts. So right now, though, historically speaking, I think we're witnessing the early stages of the transition from the dollar reserve standard to a new currency, whether the the Russians or the Chinese or a combination of them will do this, but uh, accomplish this, it's not known. But one thing for sure, history shows that countries that have a reserve currency, if they abuse the standard of money, if they print the money, the confidence will be lost and then a new group will come in and have a reserve currency. Almost always, it's all uh, the uh, new currency or the new standard has to be that uh, based on a commodity. And gold generally is the commodity that is used. I think we're witnessing that, and I think it's very historic and very dangerous, and people should be paying a lot of attention. This is about sanctions. Sanctions, we've talked about it. You've talked about it for a lot of years. They don't seem to work that well. Sometimes they backfire. Let's put up this one about oil. Here we go. This is uh, from oilprice.com via Zero Hedge. Russia sends record volumes of oil <laughs> to India and China. You, you talk about things backfiring on them. You know. they, they've driven the price of oil through the roof, natural gas through the roof. Literally, the U.S. and the EU are financing the Russian war against Ukraine. <laughs> They're right. literally financing the war. I mean, how's that for unintended consequences? Maybe, maybe Putin's playbook is penetrating deeper, you know, in, but it's just amazing. Germany, for example, and most in all of Europe, committed economic suicide for two years during COVID. They literally shot themselves in the head, destroying their economy. And now this comes around and Biden and his lackeys say, hey, we want you to do some more. Kill yourself a little more. And they say, okay, let's do some of that. Let's destroy the economy. And there's really only one. Cut off the pipeline. Cut off the pipeline. (laughs) Cut off your head, everything. There's only one country, and it was my home through the 1990s, Hungary, that has on very many issues a great... A, a political leadership right now. They said no. And he said, this is the equivalent of an atomic weapon going off in our economy if we cut off all this oil from Russia, and we're just not going to do it. And on these issues, it requires unanimity uh, among EU members, and Hungary has held fast. And you can bet there are a lot of arm twisting, a lot of knives in the back for Orban and his, and his government, but they have, to their credit to this point, said no, we are not going to back down from this. It's just not going to happen. And so that gives a little bit of life uh, left to Europe, but that's, you know, no credit to the, to the leaders of the EU. And in the end, we need both. We need to we need sound money in this country and we need to shift away from this idea of world empire. It is a foolish goal. It always has been for any country that has tried it. And it is harming us greatly. You know, we need a policy of non-interventionism. Don't try to force others to be like you. It does not work. We know in this country we have a lot of busybodies that try to use government force to make other people like them. It does not work, even within a country. Well, our federal government for a good hundred years now has used that philosophy around the world. They have been the busybody of the world, trying to use force to get the rest of the world to be like them. It does not work. And we say, that's enough. Let's stop now before we really give ourselves a major economic crisis. In the end, Thomas Jefferson, in this respect, was very right. Our policy with other nations should be peace, commerce, and honest friendship with all nations, entangling alliances with none. So that is the second time we've had a segment from uh, Chris and Ron and Dan where Chris got cut off at the end, and it's a weird thing. Maybe one of you audio experts can tell me what's going on. I can literally see in the audio timeline that there's still supposed to be audio there, and it still cuts off a few seconds early. Like, it's rolling over audio waves, and no sound comes out. I don't know what's going on there. Um, but the actual quote he was referencing from Jefferson is, Peace, commerce, and honest friendship with all nations, a tangling alliances with none. And I, I think that is words that we would be so much better off with right now if we were following them. You know, where Dan was talking about the fact that the U.S. and the EU are literally now uh, subsidizing and funding Russia's invasion of Ukraine, he's not wrong. 
And this wasn't hard to see. So way back when this first started, and they st started doing these sanctions, and I said it was going to drive up oil prices, I said something almost exactly to this point, that there is no way you punish Russia by driving up the cost of oil when uh, Russia's entire economy runs on oil and the rest of the world can do without it for only a small period of time. The, the, the reality is when you push oil under $70 a barrel, the Russian economy grinds to almost a halt. If you wanted to defeat Russia, the best thing you can do is drive the price of oil through the floor. That's how you win a war with Russia without firing a shot if you want to have a war. I don't think we need one, but if you're going to do it, that is the strategy. Oil under $70 a barrel, Russia begins to bleed and hemorrhage money and die economically. Drive oil up, Russia becomes stronger, period. And I got emails from people telling me I was stupid, I didn't know what I was talking about, I'm a Putin stooge, whatever. Uh, I'm just explaining to you how things work, and here it is. Best performing currency this quarter, the Russian ruble. Economy with the greatest growth in strength this quarter, Russia. In the middle of a conflict that supposedly they're losing. And by the way, they're not losing. Zelensky came out this week and said, we're losing you know, something in the neighborhood of 50 soldiers every day in East Ukraine. They don't have 50 soldiers to lose every day in East Ukraine. This whole thing is about to wind apart. Um, even some of the mainstream news began, like the Washington Post, has begun to explain how dire things are in East Ukraine. And this, you're like, I know some of you people are like, Jack, you just want Russia to win. I don't want anybody to do anything. I don't want any wars at all. I'm just telling you, when Russia goes to war with Ukraine, Russia wins. And Russia's was, goal was never to take Kiev. It was never to take it. That's why Bono and Jill Biden, et cetera, were hanging out there. And all we're doing is destroying our, our entire economy and the reserve status of our dollar while we piss away money in a losing fight. Now, you can be like, I really think this is horrible and I wish Ukraine would win, and you still can come to the same conclusion I do. You really can. You really can. If you see a 110-pound man spindly little arms, and he's he's going to be in a fight with a 250-pound bodybuilder, and, and, and nobody has a gun. It's just a physical fight. You can want the little guy to win. He's going to lose. Now, maybe the mismatch isn't that bad, but it's pretty bad. And our denial of this reality has resulted in pissing away the future of, the, of America's children. And so you better... Be prepared for it. You better be prepared for it in every way possible and all the ways that we talk about. Anyway, let's go on to something better. Uh, let's hear from Matt Hill on Start9 Embassy servers and the difference between the original kind of the flagship product, the Embassy uh, the Embassy One, and the new soon-to-be-released product called the Embassy Pro. Hey, everyone. This is Matt Hill with Start9 providing a quick compare and contrast between the Embassy One and the Embassy Pro. Uh, the Embassy One is our entry-level device, optimized for individuals and small families, capable of running 15 to 20 services in parallel. The Embassy Pro is our premium device, optimized for power users, developers, or groups, uh, such as large families, businesses, churches, schools, or other organizations. Uh, some side-by-side -side tech specs. Embassy One is assembled in-house by Start9. Uh, it is based on the Raspberry Pi 4B commodity SBC and comes with a Broadcom 1.5 gigahertz processor, 8 gigabytes of RAM, and comes with a detached Samsung T7 SSD for storage, either 1 terabyte or 2 terabytes. Uh, it runs a distro of Embassy OS that is based on Raspberry Pi OS. The Embassy Pro is manufactured by Purism. Uh, it is Purism's Librem Mini and comes with an Intel i7, 4.9 gigahertz processor, 32 gigs of RAM, and a 2 terabyte NVMe drive for storage. It runs a distro of Embassy OS that is based on Purism's Pure OS. Some comments about each device. The Embassy One uses a detached SSD, which means more wires, and can look a little techy or messy on the shelf. 
The aluminum case is designed for passive cooling, but it's not great, so the device can run a little hot, hurting performance. The Raspberry Pi is also woefully underpowered and cannot accommodate additional drives being plugged into it, which means in order to make backups, you will need to use a powered USB hub or use Embassy OS's over-the-air backup feature to create your backup on another computer connected to the home network. The Embassy Pro comes in an all-in-one anodized aluminum case and looks like an ornament on the shelf. It uses active fan cooling and runs cooler than the Embassy One. It has plenty of power and can accommodate plugging your backup drive directly into the device. Also, because this distro of Embassy OS is based on Purism's PureOS, it has Intel Management Engine, aka Intel's spyware, disabled and neutralized by default. Unlike other Linux distros, including Raspberry Pi OS, PureOS does not include any non-free proprietary software and or drivers and firmware. Everything is 100% open source. So which should you buy? At the present time, both devices are capable of running any service offered by Start9. So the answer to what can you do with it is the same for both devices. The difference is not what you can do, but how much of it you can do and for how many people. If you are an individual just wanting to run a Bitcoin node, a Lightning node, and some other services such as file storage, password management, or encrypted messaging, and you want to do this for yourself or for your immediate family, the Embassy One should be plenty of power and should serve you well for years to come. You may experience some slower behavior, especially if you start running more and more services. If you are someone who wants to run every single service we offer, or you intend to share your device with friends, family, uh, or other groups, or you just want the biggest, baddest thing on the market that also looks beautiful on the shelf, then that's when you buy the Embassy Pro. Also, the Embassy Pro will be easier to upgrade to larger storage later down the road once multi-drive support is implemented in Embassy OS. So that's long and short of it. Uh, if you have any additional questions, uh, you are welcome to reach out to me or any other member of the team on our Telegram community chat at t.me.start9labs. We are always around, always happy to help out. Thanks. So I had an opportunity to discuss this um, with a rep from uh, Start9 at FloatFest and see some of these the, these new products that, that Start9 is developing. And I think long-term, we're going to get into a situation where families, churches, communities are going to have somebody that fills this role, and the Start9 uh, Embassy Pro is going to be a really great product to do that with to be able to actually act as kind of a hub so you have kind of, you know, your technical guy and then you have, like, all the people using the service because a lot of people in your family, your community, may be willing to use these services, but they don't really want to do the legwork and the mental work to learn how to run these, these this equipment. And I think that there's a big place for this because if you even just think about even a small company, a 20-, 30-person headcount company, you usually still have kind of a systems admin type person. And so I think that this is going to be something to look at, especially some of you guys that, you know, you are that person. You like this stuff. You know this stuff. Because what I found with playing with the Embassy product, once you have the thing set up, The user experience is like using any other app. There might be a little bit different to it in that, hey, it's, it works a little differently, right? But it's an app on your phone. And so if you're using one of the messengers, it's a messenger on your phone. You don't need to know anything other than it's a, a messenger on your phone and that you actually have end-to-end encryption. So it's something I think that some of you guys that have maybe family or community that's open to this kind of higher-end tech but they don't want to do the work. They just want to use it. Uh, definitely take a look at it. And remember, the discount that you guys get as MSB members on Start9 is massive. There is no one else that gets you a discount like that on the Start9 products. And Start9 are the good guys, dude. 
uh, dudes and dudettes, right? I don't know why I said dudes, but they really are. Like, you need to understand that what these folks are doing is one of the pillars that we talked about earlier this week with things you, that you can tell the government you can't have. You can't have a window into my privacy and you can't have access to my data. Period. Not, I don't want you to. Not, I'm going to vote it away. Not, I'm going to have a law pass that says you can't. Not, Zuckerberg's going to get fined. No. In fact, not only no, go ahead and try. And that is how we assert sovereignty. That's why we refer to what Start9 does as digital sovereignty. We don't say digital privacy. We say digital sovereignty because it is literally go ahead and try. And that is something that we need more people to assert. And some people, again, are going to need help with that assertion. So if you're that technical person in your community, maybe talk to people, pull your, because the, the, the Embassy Pro is a bit expensive. It's not super expensive. It's a bit expensive compared to the Embassy One. But maybe if it's, you know, two or three families going in on it together that work together and use a tech together, it's not so expensive anymore. All right. Next up. Tim, the tool man cook with a grab bag on mowers, generators, and some other stuff. Hey guys, tool man Tim here, coming back at you from the workshop where we create community, find freedom, promote preparedness, and share success. Back to answer some more questions for the expert council. We're going to do a grab bag section today, so let's see how many we can get through. So let's dive right in. First question comes from Carson and he says, what issues do you usually run into with your gas mowers? I'm trying to get my hands on a decent used mower and want to know what to look out for. Well, the first thing I would say is if you're buying a used mower and you don't know a whole lot about it, the first thing I would do and it's cheap insurance is to replace the spark plug. Give myself a really good or bad case of tennis elbow years ago when I was too stubborn to change the spark plug. Number two, run some seafoam through it, get it running, and see what happens. Normally, the two issues you're going to have is a bad, fouled spark plug or a messed up, nasty carburetor. If you can do those two things, that's going to solve about 80% of your bad problems with mowers. Now, if you're looking to get something for free or dirt cheap, one one thing that I've done a lot of over the years, two things. Number one, if your landfill will allow you to bring things home from there, go look around, look for a mower that looks like it's still in pretty good shape. You know, something fairly new, but it's at the dump. A lot of times that's either somebody just upgrading or somebody who's passed away or somebody that's just too stubborn to try to fix a mower. Grab it that way, or if your town has the bulk garbage pickup day where people put things out to the curb, get up real early, drive around, grab yourself three, four mowers, whatever it takes, anything that looks half decent, take them home, and try a spark plug and seafoam in each one. If it doesn't work, take it to the landfill. If it works, you've got yourself a cheap or free mower. Always a good way to do it. Okay, question number two comes from Paul, and he wants to know, can I run my generator in bad weather, rain or snow? I have no place for me to store my generator. Well, the short answer is yes. What I would say, though, number one, when you're not using it, even though you have nowhere to store it, keep it covered. Put some plastic or plywood down on the ground, or if you can, keep it stored on top of a cement pad somewhere, but keep the moisture from getting up from underneath, and then wrap the entire thing with, uh, you know, a cheap Dollar Tree tarp, whatever you can find, with some tarp straps, and just keep it protected. Then, number two, of course, just because you don't have a place to store it doesn't mean you can't run it on occasion. So from there, make sure you run, I recommend this all the time, run your generator every month, every two months, every three months tops to make sure that thing's going to work. Because again, sitting outside, there's going to be some moisture, maybe some dampness in there. And the best way to deal with that is to give it a good run every couple of months. Now, as far as the main part of your question, rain or snow, yes, I would look at, now these aren't cheap, so you can make something yourself. But again, it sounds like you're really tight on space. So maybe look at the Gen Tent generator cover. I really like those. They're a little on the expensive side. You know, they're two to $250. But the only thing that permanently mounts on your generator is four little plastic uh, pole holders. Basically, they look like uh, a place where you would put uh, a tent pole. 
So from there, those fold in and the rest of the gen tent itself just folds up into what looks like a really small bag for a tent. But when you need it, the entire thing goes up. It gives you a canopy on top. It gives you a plastic cover for the electronics in the front. It gives you a see-through window so that you can see your gauges and an opening so that you can put fuel in. Now, the great thing about that is they've done third-party independent testing on these gen tents. They're good for hurricane-strength winds, they're good for over a foot of snow, and they're good for a ton of rain and dust. They protect it that way. So if you literally have nowhere to put your generator, but you want to run it outdoors in inclement weather, for me, the only solution I found is a gen tent, other than maybe making a little lean-to or something. But again, it sounds like you don't have a lot of space. So I hope that helps. And question number three comes from Demetrius. And this is one that you don't get very often. It's a fairly simple one, but they want to know how long can I run my generator without turning it off? Now, of course, smart aleck me wants to stay, say until it runs out of gas, but <laughs> so the real answer here is it depends on the type of fuel that you're running in your generator. Number one, if you're running gasoline, you literally can only run it until you, you that tank is empty. Do not try to fill a hot generator with gasoline. I know we've all done it, but boy, you can have a bad day if you accidentally spill a little bit on the exhaust, you get a flame up, whatever it is. So between tanks, let it cool off and refill. Now, if you have natural gas piped in, which means you basically have an unlimited supply of fuel for your generator, I contacted Furman, the manufacturer of my generator, just to ask, and they said, in theory, it's no problem to run your generator for the full length of time that you're allowed between oil changes. So if it's your first one and you're doing the break-in procedure, 50 hours, and then shut it off, change the oil, and then from then on, you can run every 100 hours. So basically four days straight without turning it off. Now, if you do that, <laughs> this is not a recommendation, but my guess is it's going to shorten the life of the generator. Just running it that long, that hard, and that hot for that period of time isn't going to have, you know, it's not going to have a really good experience. Anyway, I hope that helps as well. All right, guys, we got through three questions. Thanks again. Whatever you have for me, send them to Jack. Anything for landscaping, cordless tools, being a solopreneur, running a handyman business, landscaping, doesn't matter. Send them to Jack and I will answer them for you. And if you want to know more about what I'm up to, drop by the workshop. Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday night, 7 p.m. Mountain Time, we have a, a live stream podcast where we talk about repairedness, the art of home maintenance when help isn't around the corner. We interview some really cool people from around the homesteading and preparedness world and just have a really good time. Drop by, become part of the community, and guys, as always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. Good stuff from Tim as always. Now let's hear from Jeff Lawton on a plague a biblical-level plague of Japanese beetles. Hi, Jeff Lawton here, coming to you from Jordan. And I have a question here about Japanese beetle population on biblical proportions. Um, someone here is in Michigan on eight acres, and they put in 25 fruit trees, uh, apple, plum, peach, apricot, and pear trees. And they've had a problem with these beetles actually taking most of the fruit, and they're not getting much of a... Um, a result and not getting much to eat because of it um, and um, they work really hard on the trees uh, early spring pruning and fertilizing um, so um, yeah they're a bit fed up with it but they don't want to use anything uh, nasty on the trees because they want to eat the fruit well my question is first uh, you mentioned you put 25 fruit trees in and that's not an ecosystem that's kind of like a mixed orchard um, have you thought about planting a food forest, which is a whole diversity of plants? So support species that can be cut and pruned to the ground as mulch, so feeding the soil with woody material, increasing your organic matter en masse uh, with woody, woody stuff, which is good. All the leaves going down as well. Some bushes, some shrubs, some clumping plants, some herbs, and a whole mixture of stuff, so interactive diversity of useful plants, plants that feed the soil, fertilise the fruit trees, um, mine minerals and add them to the top as mulch, uh, and you're feeding the soil with a great diversity, and you've got more of an ecosystemic type of design, which, ha which gives a lot more habitat for predators and balances imbalances. Sounds like you've got an imbalance here. 
Now there are particular little birds, there are little wrens that grab these beetles and smash them up on trunks and like break them up. Um, so you just need more habitat for those type of little birds. But generally, generally, and I must say generally, what happens is, and you can't really predict what it is, but diverse, interactive diversity as an ecosystemic food production system has very few of these biblical proportion problems. You might get a little bit. You're probably never going to get rid of the Japanese beetle completely, but they're going to be a low profile in amongst um, a diverse predator habitat. Interactive diversity, building organic matter in the soil. We have to get the 3% organic matter plus to have a system that's continuously fertile. If we get to six to eight percent, you can you can get a fifty percent drop in your water demand. And if you get to say ten to fifteen percent organic matter, you can get up to a seventy-five percent drop in your water demand. Um, that might not be interesting to you, but it sure is interesting to an ecosystem because you get a whole different balance even in the water cycles. So move in that direction and um, check out the results is my advice. So I agree with everything that Jeff said, and I'd like to give a little bit more as well on this one, uh, based on my background and experience with this uh, this this little vermin. Uh, first of all, I'd like to give the the person that, that wrote in on this a little bit of encouragement. You have really young trees, and they're not matured yet, and they haven't really established uh, heavy root systems yet. And so they still are going to be a little bit more subject to stress, even if you left them just as kind of a mixed orchard, than rather building in a more complete ecosystem like Jeff was talking about. And that means with that higher stress level, they're going to produce more um, sugars, and, and not sugars in that the fruit will be sweet, but sugars in that the stress plant does this. And this attracts pests. And it's one of nature's mechanisms that basically says to a pest, come kill this plant. So that's that's something to be aware of. And that, if you take good care of these trees and you do the other things Jeff says, and you improve the health of the soil, not just the fertility, but the overall bio uh, health of the soil, the, the soil micro web, uh, the, 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 the soil life web. Uh, and that stress will go down. The next thing is, it's very important when someone's dealing with this like swarm of Japanese beetles to understand something about them. They run in cycles. Now, I'm not saying that next year you won't have any Japanese beetles. What I'm saying is, if you truly have a biblical level plague of Japanese beetles this year, you probably will have a lot less of them next year. They they are not like locusts and they come like once every 17 years or something like that. But they definitely have an ebb and flow, a tidal flow uh, type of situation. So it's not like there'll be all of them plus more next year. Now, can I t guarantee you next year will be a light year? No. But in general, my experience when we had them in Pennsylvania, if you had a really heavy year, that was kind of it with that super heavy year for a while. So you've got that going for you too. Next, there are traps for these beetles that you can hang in your trees and they will go in there and then they can't get out and they die and that will help control them. Next, Jeff mentioned wrens and I had mentioned that to him when I forwarded this email over and what I said was the only thing I've ever seen eat one of these, because they're like armored little cusses, right? The only thing I've ever seen eat one is a bird called a Jenny Wren. Now, I'm not sure if Jenny Wren is the proper scientific common name or whatever the hell for it, right? I'm sure it's not the scientific name, but I'm not even sure if it's a proper common name or if it's a regional, like, central Pennsylvania name. But if you look up Jenny Wren, you'll find the bird that I'm talking about, and they probably live where you live. And there is a specific dimension to a birdhouse, I can't tell you what it is, that you can make that is like ideally suited for these little birds. And these things, when they're adults, they're not much bigger than a, like a big peanut. They're tiny. But they, there's a certain size house and a certain structure to it. My grandfather built these by the dozen to help with this. He had them on the clotheslines and the grapevine and all over the place. And every one of them every year ended up with Jenny Wrens on them. And the way I know they were killing the Japanese beetles is you would see them go down to our driveway 
And we had a driveway. It was like gravel and coal cinder driveway. And they would be down there bouncing stuff around. And when you went down, what you'd find is Japanese beetle wings all over the place. So they definitely will kill them. So you can improve their habitat. And I think this is a good thing to do anyway because my understanding is that these are one of many birds that were displaced by invasive other birds, and they they do want a very specific size of a hole and a cavity, and when other birds use that, it's not available to them. So this would be good for that bird anyway. Last, I highly recommend that as at least a short-term remedy, that you start using Howard Garrett, who is also known as the Dirt Doctor's Fruit and Nut Tree Organic Program, which I will not go over, but it involves spraying with things like garlic pepper tea and Garrett juice, which you can either buy or make yourself, aeration of the soil, uh, making sure that the entire root flare of the tree is... And it, I'll just say that it really works, and the whole thing's available on his website. I have a link in the show notes where you can learn more about that. I think if you stack that all together, not only will you get results, but you will accelerate your results and improve your results over time. With that, let's move on. I have one now from Doc Bones on medical censorship. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival website doomandbloom.net, co-author of the 2022 Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, the fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, plus designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. We all know that the 1984-style Ministry of Truth of the current administration has been put on hold for now, but disinformation bureaus exist and are being promoted in other places, especially in medicine. A bill entered in California state legislature is an example. Bill AB-2098 gives power to the state's medical board to investigate and punish doctors whose advice and treatment regarding COVID-19 varies from the, quote, applicable standard of care, unquote. The medical establishment now has disinformation authority over others who dare to voice alternative options to their patients in the Golden State. Consequences include actions that can take away a medical license, essentially canceling a doctor's career. Doctors on the West Coast should be dismayed, but not surprised, by AB-2098. California's attempt to rein in misinformation was expected, but goes against everything a young physician should be taught in medical school. The next medical generation should be taught and encouraged to be objective with regards to the current conventional wisdom. Even more importantly, each medical generation should question prevailing thought when appropriate. If medical professionals didn't have this freedom in the past, medical progress would not have moved at the pace needed to meet today's challenges. California is making an effort to cancel a healthcare professional's right to think freely by creating, yes, a censor. Worse than that, a censor with the power to ruin careers. If today's practicing physicians fail to toe the line and follow conventional dogma, they are going to suffer the penalty. In progressive, put that in quotes, communities, of which there are plenty in California, dozens of complaints are going to be entered by activists against perfectly competent and caring practitioners who offer alternative options. Defending themselves against such complaints is risky for young doctors, many of whom have spouses and children to support and can't afford putting their licenses on the line. They're going to feel forced to follow the straight and very narrow path, even if that path isn't in their patient's best interests. At present, Bill AB-2098 refers specifically to advice and treatment relating to COVID-19. A bill can be easily amended, however, to include another medical issue, then another, then another. Eventually, there's going to be an infallible set of standards that cannot be violated. If there's a definition of a slippery slope in a medical dictionary, this is it. The bill is meant to protect the community against dangerous doctors. Yes, some doctors may be incompetent, even negligent. Some may have opinions that aren't supported by hard data. Others may offer questionable options as a cure-all, but no drug or procedure cures everything, and sweeping medical claims should always be viewed with a skeptical eye by doctors and by ordinary citizens. A medical board should scrutinize practitioners who make wild claims and take action when necessary to keep patients safe. What's happening in California, however, is different. The bill will have implications that are far-reaching enough to set a precedent for other state and national organizations. Before long, there'll be one way to deal with a particular health issue and one way only. If the treatment accepted by the medical establishment doesn't work, what are physicians to do? Shrug and walk away? The steamroller of censorship has already started. The Federation of State Medical Boards, a national organization, has passed a misinformation policy of their own. They recommend that its members crack down on errant physicians. The CEO of the organization has been quoted in the LA Times as saying, quote, It's incumbent upon physicians to keep up with what's permissible, 
what's approved, what's authorized, and what's not, unquote. The Federation wants to exert an iron fist authority over the entire country's physicians, and that means some states will institute punishments for heretics that equate to much more than a slap on the wrist. Many media outlets, like the LA Times, would actually welcome a 1984-style medical ministry of truth. I don't. I'm a retired physician who writes about strategies that might save lives in long-term disasters. In these situations, the caregiver's options are limited due to a lack of functioning medical infrastructure. So you have to be flexible and think outside the box. This means sometimes crossing into uncharted territory, territory that has been set off limits by the medical powers that be. Something, however, is better than nothing. Theodore Roosevelt once said, do what you can with what you have where you are. I wonder what the medical board in California would say about that. When the San Andreas Fault unleashes the big one one day, will doctors receive reprimands if all they have to splint a broken leg is a couple of sticks and a t-shirt? There's more than one way to skin a cat. There might, surprise, be more than one way to treat an illness. Developing different ways to handle infections, injuries, and chronic illness is the way medicine moves forward. With COVID, that might even mean letting physicians prescribe medicines that are politically out of favor, like ivermectin, for which, by the way, there is a lot of hard data available. Heart disease, cancer, diabetes, thyroid disease. What if we didn't allow new ways of diagnosis and treatment? We'd be stuck in a previous medical era and lives would be lost. Discouraging free thought in our healthcare providers is a mistake. California makes mistakes on policy regularly, but this is the kind that one day down the road may cost its citizens dearly. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, don't forget to check out the Amazon Top 20 4th Edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook and get your family medically prepared with quality medical kits and individual supplies from store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Yeah, this is an ongoing problem, um, and it's not just in medicine. It's just actually, it should it should honestly horrify the average American that this can happen in medicine. If you can silence and punish a doctor for a medical opinion, and you don't even have a degree in medicine because you just have the power of the state. What what then is a high enough level of professional authority that it cannot be sanctioned and controlled and managed by the state? And the answer is nothing. The answer is nothing. If you can control a medical professional, and make them silent when they see something wrong in medicine, then you can literally do it to anything, and it has to stop. And I, I, I have to tell you that the AMA, the American Medical Association, and the, and the medical boards are all part of the problem, and they are private, but they are now using the government as a tool. So it's, 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 it's medical fascism. It's the same formula used in so many industries where you have this private entity that then uses the authority of the state. People understand the American Medical Association is a labor union. And the licensing boards are run by doctors, but they're often, you know, they're, they're at the state level appointed by government. So it, it's a quasi-private entity that uses state force to carry out its will. And I think we literally need to build a complete new licensing mechanism or certification mechanism is maybe a better word for medical professionals. That is, is, is a parallel system. And I know that sounds crazy, but I don't have a better answer. And I, I think that it's something that doctors need to work on. And I also think it's something that maybe we need to start again with our status jujitsu thinking about how to leverage things like the sovereignty that exists for Indian reservations in the United States and anything else we can come up with. I mean, literally anything else we can come up with because this should terrify you. I know it probably doesn't, but it's probably because you're not allowing yourself to fully comprehend what it means. Not because you're not capable, but because there's a piece of you that does not want to swallow this pill because it is so horrific that you can take away the credentials of a doctor for disagreeing with a bureaucrat is insane. For saying that a medication that's been used safely for 70 years is safe to use, but not for this. You have to be out of your mind to think that that's okay. And because the, 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 the pandemic 
is is pretty much waned out and people have tired of it. And even though government keeps trying to put it on life support, hit it with a defibrillator and bring it back to life, it won't come back. People have a tendency to turn away from this and think this is not a problem anymore. It is a problem. And there will be something in the next year, year and a half, the most, where this problem will resurface in a real way and it will be worse than it's been already. So we need to start thinking about what to do about it. Next up, we have a question for the other doctor on the panel, Dr. Ken Berry, on dehydrated butter and eggs. Hey, Jack and the TSP crew, this is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question today from Charles. Uh, Charles says, from a prepping and health point of view, does it make sense to use and, and make dehydrated butter and or eggs? My wife found the dehydrated butter and eggs uh, links below while looking for keto recipes. Seems like they're both great prep items, are they? They check the box on keto, or do they? Uh, how come we don't hear more about them? So this is a great question, Charles. Thank you for this. Uh, I think that um, freeze-dried or dehydrated butter and eggs are both great prepping uh, items to have for long-term storage. Uh, they do check the box for keto. In the dehydration process, you might lose some of the vitamin content, but they're still going to be full of very healthy proteins and fats and vitamins and minerals, okay? And so I think they're wonderful. Uh, I personally like to store my eggs in the butts of my chickens, and that I think if, if you can even have three or four hens in your backyard, no matter how small your property is, or three or four ducks, or if you, even if you live in a high-rise apartment, you can have four or five quail in your cockatiel cage because times are tight and you sold that damn cockatiel because it's a waste of money, and you bought four or five coternix quail and you've got them in the cockatiel cage. That's an excellent way to have long-term storage of quail eggs is in the quail's butt. Does that make sense? I like to store uh, protein and fat on the hoof and on the uh, claw. And so we've got chickens and we've got sheep. We're going to get some cattle. I think that's the best long-term storage uh, technique. But if you cannot do that, then I think dehydrated butter and eggs is an excellent long-term way to store the healthy fat and healthy protein and vitamins and minerals that are found in butter and eggs. Hope this Helps, Charles. This is Dr. Barry. Talk to you guys next time. So my my thoughts on the butter part is that, in general, most people don't seem very happy with the flavor of you know, like a, a powdered butter or something like that when reconstituted. And you may be better off looking into what's called canned butter for uh, long-term needs of a butter product. Things that are high in fat, um, and, and butter being almost all fat, don't generally freeze-dry, dehydrate, etc. really, really well. Eggs tend to do fine, but they're, the, the process with eggs is you cook the egg, and then you dry it out or freeze-dry it, and you make a powder from it. And I've had both freeze-dried and just plain dehydrated eggs, and I have not found that they are... Uh, in any way off-putting, that they make a pretty decent product. Uh, both would probably work fine for cooking in other things, but as a kind of, we're going to actually spread the butter on bread. I've talked to people that like the butter, and people not so much. So um, I, have, I think Red Feather is the brand of canned butter I've tried, and I've been relatively impressed with that. If your mileage varies, feel free to let me know. Maybe you like canned butter. I'm not sorry, canned butter, but, but powdered butter, uh, on the eggs thing, something Ken said I just really never thought of before. There's actually no reason that a small group of quail, especially if they're all females, because females can, you, you think of the male being the aggressor, but with Cordonix quail, if you don't have enough space, the females will often really hammer the male in the group. Um, so maybe you just have somebody else that breeds, and a small relatively small, like indoor parrot cage, uh, certainly could handle a, a, you know, a, a quartet 
of quail, and you'll probably get somewhere in the neighborhood, believe it or not, you do, if you put lighting on it and do the lighting at the right frequency, you'll probably get in the neighborhood of five to six quail eggs a day. Now, if you uh, a family and you're going to eat eggs every day for every member of the family, that won't get the job done. But if you eat eggs a few times a week, that's a legitimate idea right there. Um, and I just say that you will want to have some form of bedding that's easy to remove and replace. You will have to deal with that more than you would with a parrot. I'm just saying. All right, next up, it is my turn. And we are going to talk about, again, starting off with a quote here by Thomas Paine, one of our founders, Government, even its best state, is but a necessary evil in its worst state, an intolerable one. Thomas Paine. This made me think of natural law, but it also made me think of the term natural governance. And, and where we go forward with that term is, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna speak for you, but I know a large number of this community have either you made the journey before me or you made the journey with me or after me into the world of volunteerism. A simple belief that all interactions between people should be voluntary. It's, I know that sounds insane to some people that we could actually have a society where people are not coerced into participating in things they don't want to be part of. But I, I believe that we can. And when you have the discussion, you get into that scary word, as my, uh, my good late friend Toby Hemingway used to call it, the scary word of anarchy. And that means a lack of rulers, not a lack of rules. And it does not mean a lack of governance. It means a lack of a supreme governor. It means a lack of a governance by fiat. I am in charge because other people said I'm in charge and you shall do as I say. It is how fiat-based governance works. How about fiat money? But that's fiat-based governance. We are in charge because we say so. And you could say, well, it's, it's democracy, but it's still we're in charge because we say so. And, and, and part of the democracy argument is, see, I believe in democracy as a form of governance as long as the thing being granted by uh, the individual in the democratic system is a thing that they have. So I have no right to your property. I have right, no right to tell you what you can put into your body. I have no right to tell you what you can own. I have no right to tell you what you can't own. I have no right to tell you how much of a thing that you, you earn you are allowed to keep and how much you must give to me. I have none of those rights. There is no, there is no place where we would ever say that I, I inherently have that right over you. You have that right to give up to me if you choose to. That is true. If you have a right to property, you have a right to say, I am willing to give Jack 10% of what I earn for him to provide me services, right? Or for him to provide me protection. Because I think he's a good-looking guy, and I like him, and I think he should have half of my money or 10% of my money. You, have every right, you don't have the right to do it for your neighbor. That's the argument against the way we explain how our system works because of democracy. But you, you've, you've voted for a thing you didn't have a right to do on your own. And that kind of falls apart. But the, the, the argument then becomes, well, it can't work unless we have government. No, the, the real argument is it can't work without governance. And so we have to look at where does governance come from other than the state? And what is the most natural form of government? It is natural governance, often called natural law. But I think those are two different things. Like natural law is what we derive from natural governance. And this is nobody's theory but mine unless somebody else had it and I don't know about it. I'm not, I'm not claiming that this is what Adam Smith really meant or something like that. This is what I mean. What I mean is I don't really need a law, right? I don't need a natural law that says thou shall not jump off a building. Because thou dost not jump off a building. Because natural law, i.e. gravity, says thou shall fall to thy death. Right? No one needs to explain this to you. Unless you're mentally damaged in some way, even if nobody ever told you, hey, if you climb up to the top of that building and jump off it, you'll die. And you've never seen a tall building. You, you lived in some place called non-tall building land, and there was never anything that you ever saw in your life. It's like a desert without a cliff that you, you grew up in. And the highest thing you ever saw was about the height of a table. And you've never seen something high enough 
that if you jump off it, you're seriously going to become harmed. You lived in a place with no roofs, right? I know it's crazy, but just imagine you did. And then somebody goes, hey, it's kind of like the Truman Show. We screwed you over. There's tall things. And they brought you to a city and said, see that building? Look at it. You'd be like, wow, that's amazing. I never saw anything that high. And then if you if you went up on it to an observation deck, no one would have to tell you not to jump off of it. You would know if you jumped off of it, you're going to hurtle to the ground and get hurt. How? Natural governance. There's a system in place that informs people by their experience that doing certain things will cause them harm. So we can start off with, there's no point in making a law that natural governance already does a great job of enforcing. And is it illegal to jump off a building? Yes. Does it matter? Is anybody that is going to jump off a building going to be like, you know, it's going to jump off a building to kill myself today, but they passed a law against that, so I guess I won't. No. It's not how that works at all. People don't jump off buildings because they don't want to die. Even people that do want to die often go up to a high thing and look at it, and the reality of natural governance hits them, and they say, wait a minute, maybe I shouldn't do this. And it is in this spot that we can begin to look at how many laws we have that are redundant. If there is a natural situation in place to prevent a thing, then maybe we don't need a man-made law to reinforce it. Now, does this solve all our problems? No, but it all of a sudden, it makes us just reverse the way we look at things a little bit. So then, the next obvious question would be, how many systems of governance have humans set up for themselves that do not require the state? And if you, if you look in a lot of places where people interact, they form their own interactive governance almost on the fly. And when people disrupt the natural organizational structure of humans, generally other humans are like, hey, knock it off. What, what is the law that requires that people stand in line at a store and not cut in? There, as far as I know, there's no law that says, if you break in line at the Piggly Wiggly, that Sheriff, Sheriff Bocephus will come arrest you. But people don't do it. Well, why don't they do it? Because they get their ass in a sling, that's why. Does that mean that no bully will ever bully their way into line? No. But what would often happen if it was a very clear violation of someone else's place in line, cash register person will just say, sorry, get to the back of the line. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna ring you up. So how many places could humans create their own laws through natural structure and organization, if the state stayed out of the way. How many places would we have solutions if we didn't always turn to the state and ask for them? And I'm not going to give you a list today. I'm not here to lecture from on high and say, these are all the things that we don't need government to do. I'm just pointing out that if we start to recognize that human beings naturally create law and natural governance in social structures that there's a lot of places we can just start backing off on right away. And that there's a logical outcome in this. And, of course, what the people who trust government, and I mean the state when I say government this way, always want to say is, well, if we, if we don't have this state, you know, and I, let's, let's just, I'll play minarchist for you right now so you don't have to go all the way. I'm just saying there's a whole shitload of stuff we don't need government to do. Maybe we still need government for roads and my national defense. Right, and for basic property protection, right? I know you're thinking you're gonna take my you're gonna take away Jack's anarchist card. I'm just pretending. Right? I'm meeting people halfway. Try it sometimes. This is a good thing to do. Right? And if we did that, then maybe humans would start to solve their own problems. And a natural formation from this would be regional and voluntary jurisdictional governance, not the state. Regional, natural governance based on ownership of property. So that you, you, we can already see this exists. Unfortunately, it exists for people who, who just can't get enough government. Well, I've talked about it before, both the HOA or the Property Owners Association, right? These are entities that exist for somebody's like, we just don't have enough government in our lives. 
State, federal, local, county, not enough. Need more. Want to tell Bill that he can't leave his car in the driveway, he has to put it in his garage or whatever. I mean, if you think that's too... I've actually seen this happen. There was actually a big fight because there was an HOA here in a place called Carrollton. It's not that far from me, 45 minutes away-ish, over on the Dallas side. And the issue was you could park your car in your driveway. If your car was newer... I shit you not, then a certain year, let's say if it was 1999 or newer and this was like 2010. I, I'm not kidding. This is a real thing. If your car was older than that, no matter how nice it was, it had to be parked in your garage. Now, exactly who came up with this and why, I don't know. But there was a big fight about it. Of course, they went to the state to resolve the fight. And I believe in the end, the state said... You moved here, you accepted the contract, and thereby you are subject to the contract. Either pay the fine or put your car in the garage or get a new car. But if we can have governance for people that can't have enough government, they want more, 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 doesn't that mean we can have enough governance for everybody? It's just a thought. Can we not create our own systems? And the answer is we know we can because of natural governance being our starting point. We don't have a law that says you're not allowed to stick your, your penis in a beehive. And yet we don't have a rash of people sticking their penises in beehives. And you might think this is just hyperbole, but this is what I want to point out. How many places do we have people doing things that we have to consider equally reckless because they are, in fact, protected by the state? Look at monetary policy. And as bad as that is, look at private monetary policy. Look at what banks do. Look what investment institutions do. Look what corporations do with money. And tell me it's not because they are funded by and protected by the state. Tell me that leveraging billions of dollars on vaporware isn't equally reckless to putting your penis in a beehive and slapping the, the roof of it. If you do that, you're going to get hurt. But you're going to get hurt. I'm going to laugh. It'll be on America's Funniest Home Videos. You might even make a profit doing it. But what if you can do something that reckless, make a profit doing it, but other people get hurt? This is, this is what I'm trying to get to with you today. The state is in direct conflict with natural governing systems. Humans only behave so recklessly before they suffer the consequences. And government usually ends up actually insulating people from the consequences of reckless actions, often that cause others, which is directly in conflict with its stated purpose. What can we, what can we glean from this? What we glean from this isn't, hey, everybody become an anarchist like Jack. No, what we should glean from this is, It really is the only solution we have now to set up parallel systems. That's why I mentioned it when Doc was talking, Doc Bones was talking about medical censorship. The only solution is to create a parallel medical system. I know that sounds insane, but it literally is the only solution. And here's the good news. We don't need the parallel, parallel medical uh, system to do cardiothoracic surgery. The, the existing one actually does that really well. What we needed to do is give people like nutritional and medical advice for things that they can largely do without the system we have that already exists. Not everything about the banking system in of itself is bad. The whole system's predatory. I'd like to destroy it, but I'm not going to deny that there's some things about it that are useful. And much is the same as the way the government is. It's just another way of looking at things. With that, let's wrap things up. Let me remind you guys, if you like the show and the work that we do, you can do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. I don't have an item of the day for you today. Uh, I'm trying to get ahead this week because I'm gone next week and the week after that. But you can always help me out just by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Hey, would you like to tip me and learn more about Bitcoin and Lightning and all that good stuff? Here's the way you can do it. And it's not just for me, because most of the tips I get end up being something like, you know, five cents from, from so-and-so or whatever. But it, it really is empowering to learn how to stream Satoshis to your favorite podcaster, and it will open your mind. Here's what you do. Use the Exodus wallet that I recommend and convert, go in there, 
and and you can just look up how to how to use lightning on Exodus because you got to get some of your Bitcoin in a lightning, okay? And just look up how to do it on YouTube, or go to tiplightning.com and it tells you how to do it. And then you get some of your Bitcoin in a lightning. Say you do it with 50 bucks worth, just just to, to have some fun with it. Then get a wallet called Breeze. Open it up. It will take forever to sync the first time you receive to it. It's like 20 minutes, but it feels like forever. Okay. Once that's and it takes a little bit of time to get your money from Bitcoin into Bitcoin Lightning. Those two things. Then everything becomes instantaneous. Then send you some of your Bitcoin that's on the Lightning chain over to your Breeze wallet. B R E E Z. Yeah. Okay. That's over there. What can you do? Now you click on their menu and you can see podcasts and look for the Survival Podcast. Or Joe Rogan, whoever you want to tip. If they're in there, select them. And when you listen, there's a little thing at the bottom that says how many sats you want to stream for your time frame. And you, you, you set it to whatever you want. Or you can just say, I'm going to give them 10,000 sats. Don't worry, it's not that much money. 10,000 sats is not much money at all. You know how much 10,000 satoshis is? It's about three bucks, right? And then you could send that to your favorite podcaster. Maybe it's me. I don't know. Anyway, it's, it's just all very, very cool. And you're talking about small amounts of money, and I want you to start learning what you can do with it. I want to talk more about Breeze. Uh, I'm going to be gone starting next week for two weeks. And when I get back, we start doing the Bitcoin breakout. Uh, I am going to talk more about Breeze and, and other things. But Breeze is an incredibly powerful tool. Uh, it has apps within the app that allow you to do things even like your own Kickstarters privately. I don't think that's on the Apple side yet, but it will be soon. There's a lot of cool technology emerging, and you can support TSP with it, or you can build your own thing with it. You can support other causes that you find. And this is, you know, I was listening to Max Kaiser talk about this, and he was saying that Bitcoin is true FU money. Because we always thought it was FU money, where I have so much money I can do whatever I want with it. But real FU money is money that you can't have, that you can't change, that you can't alter, that I can do whatever I want with and send to whoever I want, and you can't take it back. And so that's an empowerment thing. And when we talk about parallel systems, and the reason I brought this up at the end isn't because I'm worried about you sending me 37 cents worth of Satoshis. It's because if we can build a parallel banking system, what can't we do? Because if I had told you that we could build a parallel banking and economic system. Ten years ago, 15 years ago, you would have thought it was crazy. Now you can't deny it's already being done. Just something to think about. The other way that you can support us, become an MSB member. And I do take Bitcoin, other cryptocurrencies, and lightning payments for MSB membership. You can learn more at the Survival Podcast uh, forward slash members. And tomorrow I will be back with an Outback with Jack. Thanks for tuning in today, and I will catch you tomorrow. You pull yourself up, they keep bringing you down. Are they gonna bail you out, or just run you around? They said you should have a house, the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you'll never have to pay.